This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. Uh, in our studio for the hour is Dan David, co-founder of Geo Investing, also now running for Congress uh, in the district, very close to, to my heart here in, Phil, uh, in Montgomery County. Uh, Dan, welcome to our studio. Thank you for having me. Uh, professor is back from vacation. You've been traveling for two weeks over in Europe. Professor, we're going to get you for some commentary, get you to, to stick with us for, I think, the first part of the show here. Um, maybe sort of give us your reflection. We haven't talked to you in a little while. How, what's yeah. been happening in, in the markets? Uh, we, you were leaving just as, as Powell was having his, his testimony. And maybe right. any thoughts on just what's been happening in, in the economy, interest rates, uh, your views? Yeah, we had a wonderful uh, two-week uh uh, riverboat cruise down the Danube from Budapest uh, all the way to the Black Sea. Usually the lower Danube is not as popular as the upper Danube in touring. Uh, and we, we went through five countries. It was really quite a quite an interesting experience. One of the big surprises was the Internet was actually quite good on the boat. <laughs> so I really was able to uh, to keep up with uh, uh, what, uh, what transpired. Um, no big surprise. I, I listened uh, to his, his news conference. Um, you know, it's uh, you know pretty much the the standard line. I, I, I actually thought that Steve Leisman, uh, you know, who's a chief economist CNBC, asked an interesting question, and and that is that uh, you know none of the Fed people had uh, penciled in uh, you know over uh, you know three percent GDP growth. Uh, you know, which is what the, the Trump administration is uh, is looking for, and may get this year. Interestingly enough, I want to I want to talk about that. Um, but he said, yeah, we said uh, you know it could happen, but we're waiting to actually see the signs that it will, and rather than try to project uh, anything that we don't now see in the data. Um, but basically, you know, well, we have what do we have today. We had some interesting uh, data uh, come out. We had. Uh, the CPI, the uh, excuse me, the personal consumption deflator, which is the price index that the Fed uses, uh, and its goal is two percent, and it hit two percent year over year for the first time in six years. We finally got up to the the Fed's goal. Now, of course, getting there doesn't mean staying there. And the question is, are we going to are we going to go uh, over that amount? We also got some pretty weak uh, consumption. Uh, data um, for uh, for the month of May, and uh, GDP estimates, which were running as high as five to five and a half percent for the second quarter uh, this morning, were marked down now uh, more into the four four percent uh, 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 region. Uh, actually, the uh, the uh, forecaster I follow actually thinks it's uh, going to be between four and a half and five, which is still a an extremely uh, very very good rate as you know the um, first quarter was just revised down a couple of tenths we learned that a couple days ago down to two but um, uh, you know if we get over 
uh, five, um, um, or get over four, actually we're over a three percent for the first half of the year. So we we are uh, at least uh, for a couple of quarters running into that three percent. Uh, the most interesting data coming up, of course, is a week from today uh, when we're going to get the June employment report. You know that. Uh, again, I mean, the early estimate is payroll is up 190,000. I pointed out many, many times that uh, that's almost 100,000 over what the economy produces in terms of workers itself. Uh, that could further tighten the uh, unemployment rate. Um, uh, and if we see it tick down from 3.8 to 3.7, it will be nearly a 50-year low. Um, current estimates are it will stay at, at 3.8, but one – Actually, uh, if you did the exact number last month, it was at like 376, so it was actually almost 37 last time. And again, the importance of that is as that unemployment rate's tighter and tighter, wage increases, they are increasing. We are finally seeing wage inflation. Now, you know, part of that is a productivity boost. It looks pretty good this quarter, but most of it is just very, very tight labor markets. And that, of course, is the reason why I still project that the Fed will be on an aggressive path throughout this year. And now, we, Professor, you talked about the sort of state of the economy, and as and one of the things you know coming into this year, you thought this year was going to be a little bit of a volatile year, and you talked about the Fed increasing rates as one of it, but then you also talked about the midterm elections, which is one yeah. to be very topical for our show and discussion with Dan here. Um, yeah. Now, I mean, I, I I think this whole Supreme Court is really. Uh, going to be, be throwing a lot of uncertainty into this midterm election. Um, I, I really want to hear what Dan has to say, whether he thinks that Trump will try to get a nominee approved by the Senate before uh, this Congress adjourns. Um, and, um, uh, you know, would, would this uh, revitalize the Democratic base to come out in uh, November, and, um, uh, and if they don't like the nominee or feel he or she is, is too conservative uh, and actually produce uh, a, a, dem- a Democratic surprise. I, I think that, the, you know, this is really very, very important, even aside from what a conservative justice means for not just the next year, five years or 10 years, but maybe 20, 30, 40 years uh, going into the uh, into the future, which is uh, just another thing. So there's political ramifications. Uh, there's the state of the court. I, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think Kennedy's uh, resignation, although it wasn't completely unanticipated, has really focused uh, a lot of these political issues uh, that I think um, are are really going to make a very uh, hot midterm uh, election. So no, no, I, I saw definitely you... want to hear what I want to hear what Dan has to say about. Uh, uh, of, of his, his thoughts on uh, what might uh, uh, might happen uh, there, and of course, uh, you know, ongoing. Uh, we we have uh, everyone knows trade is volatile. Um, you know, this is the part of the uh, Trump agenda I do not like, and uh, I mean, it, there's possible of a good outcome and negotiation with China and better and one in protection of intellectual property. I'm hoping for that outcome. Um, but it's no, it's not a slam dunk that that uh, will be the outcome. So that does throw uh, uncertainty, and it, it really, I think, a lot of, of well, at least what we see, uh, the daily volatility in in the market is is uh, you know is very geared to the ups and downs of 
of the uh, trade issue. Well, let me bring in our guest, Dan David. Welcome to our studio here on, on Warren's campus. Thank you. I should say welcome back. You spent some time here at the Wharton Executive Education Program, so you yeah. return guests back to Wharton. Um, but maybe it's a great you know, program, by the way. Very good. Let me sort of just reintroduce you. So you're co-founder of Geo Investing, an equities research firm based in Skipack, uh, Pennsylvania here. Uh, you're regarded as a leader in U.S. microcap China sectors, also featured in the documentary China Hustle. So so this idea of the China tariffs and, and the research around China is sort of interesting and timely. Um, maybe you could sort of walk us through a little bit about your story, how you went from private business, geo investing, what got you focused on China to now running for Congress here in the Forest District in Pennsylvania? Well, sure. Uh, for I, I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan, uh, for the first 22 years of my life, and I matriculated here around 1995-ish, uh, and I, I was working in the retail industry as a senior executive, uh, traveling the country. I had $80 million worth of responsibility uh, up until 2006 when I decided to start my partnership with then now Geo Investing and my partner Maj. Uh, and that was providing research to companies that were largely uncovered. Uh, you know, you could get any kind of research you wanted on IBM in 2006 and seven, and uh, Google and whoever else. But uh, some of these smaller mid cap companies, people kept calling us and saying, you're so good at what you do, give us your research. It took a lot of time. We ended up putting it on a website, and that was the idea of geo-investing. And it was all about long research. It was all about investing. None of it had anything to do with shorting. Uh, neither my, or my, me or my partner ever shorted uh, until 2011, actually. Uh, so it was, it, it was good times in 2006 and seven in investing. Uh, 2008 was, was a tough year, you might have heard. Uh, <laughs> Slightly tough, Dan. Yeah, yeah. It was. I used to, it's the beginning of the biggest bear market in seventy-five years, so I would say yes. Yeah, and and, geez, looking back, I mean, we we all should have really, really saw that coming. And and what we what we did is we listened to investment bank analysts who, you know, I now know twelve and fifteen years later that are not disinterested, uh, and and are very much so uh, about. Getting banking deals, in my opinion, they call it a Chinese firewall between banking and the analyst, but that's more like a fern, not a firewall. Uh, the the buy to sell radio, ratio in what uh, August to September two thousand eight was probably ninety to one. I mean ninety to ten. Uh, so it's ridiculous, and 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 that kind of opened up the idea that independent research firms that really weren't interested in doing financing for companies uh, and wouldn't cost their bank's business by giving poor ratings or sell ratings could be uh, um, more valuable than actual so-called analysts. So getting through the 2008 crisis, we really looked at the investing model that my partner had had for 20 years, and it was about value investing. And it really was deep dive research, what we consider deep dive research. And and, and kind of a ground-up approach and speaking to the CEOs and the CFOs and sometimes doing site visits and things of this nature, uh, channel checks, customers. And in 2009, those companies that, that floated to the top of all of our matrix, uh, you know, highest EPS growth, highest uh, re revenue year-over-year -year growth, tended to be a China-based company listed on our U.S. exchanges. And we thought this was great. I mean – 
here's this opportunity to to invest in this this emerging market uh, that we are friends with, and they're regulated by our regulators here in the United States, and and we invested almost everything in 2009 into the the China space, and did very very well. Uh, picked up 229 uh, percent all along, uh, and then in 2010 there were some critics who who we, we would call short sellers uh, that said some of the companies that maybe we had invested in or or were looking at investing in were frauds. And me coming from the corporate world myself, I decided right away that these people were wrong and they were trying to spook the market and they were trying to scare American investors. And I was going to prove them wrong because we're entrepreneurs and we hired our own China team to go look at 30 companies. And they went and looked at 30 companies and came back and said, the short sellers, the critics are wrong. They're understating the problem. Every one of the companies. Worse than even they said. It was worse than they could imagine. I mean, there were there were companies that were Potemkin villages that would really basically set up for a few days, do an investor roadshow for American investors coming in, and then the factory turns off. And we've got this on time lapse video. I mean, yeah, I, I saw that on TV. I yeah. mean, I, I forget what uh, you know. You were on a program. Was it CNBC or? Or, or another one where they you, you actually showed there was like n nothing happening outside of when you did your official visit because you have that time lapse uh, video of the whole plant area. Well, I, I think what you're referring to actually, we didn't do the visit, right? So we know that you can't do diligence in China by appointment because if you make an appointment it's it's going to be a facade and they yeah. they can set that up well so when we do our diligence there it's not by appointment but we we'd set up time lapse surveillance on this company for call it 60 days and we didn't know this was going to happen but what we were showing was a factory that was not running at all and then one day some smoke started coming out of the smokestacks and then the next day some people started milling around and showing up and we thought, well, okay, well, I guess they're they're opening up now. They're they're going to be the factory said they said they're going to be. And then the third day, uh, two busloads of American investors uh, get up. We didn't know they were coming. <laughs> they, they they come and they get off the bus and they walk around. And they take a tour. And they they get on the bus. They leave. And as soon as they leave, all the lights go off. The smoke stops, and all the employees leave. And 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 this happened much more often than you could possibly imagine. And it's cost. It's cost American taxpayers, uh, investors, pension funds, 401ks, um, billions. And, I, you know, I'm estimating in the hundreds of billions. It's an ongoing fraud, by the way, because it's still not illegal for a person in China to steal from a person in the United States. There's no law that prevents them from doing this. So mm -hmm. the money that they, st they stole and they steal, they keep. And... Uh, they don't go to it's jail. Like, it's like penny stock operators back of 50, 100 years ago. I mean, right? Well, they, they could go to jail. Companies and, well, and they're, they're really not their facades. Well, I mean, it, that, that still happens today here in the United States. But at least there's a chance somebody goes to jail and there's a clawback provision on, on getting some of the money back if, if you can find it. Um, you know, here we know where the money is that they stole. It's in their bank account in China. We could actually see it. We just have no mechanism between the United States and China to get that money back. And that's why now, I started lobbying Congress. Small, I mean, now when we look at the Shanghai yeah. composite, I mean, I'm trying to get an idea. 
Uh, you're, you're talking here about the small mid-cap area in China? No, I'm talking here in the United States. These, these I mean, com- when you're talking about the Chinese companies that are facades. Yeah, but they listed uh, in the U.S. Are you, are you are, uh, I mean, certainly not all of them. Is, is this pro- mostly in the very small cap area? Not at all. No. I would not say that. I would say that over the last 10 years, after I, our company is is responsible for getting over a dozen companies kicked out of this country and delisted from our exchanges. Uh, others have done the same. Uh, you can point to $50 billion of empirically, there it is, fraud, but you can't point to how much insider trading happens in China, uh, you know, over a thousand different accounts, things of this nature. Well, let's talk about how you got from the the documentary China Hustle towards running for Congress and wanting to, like, how did that yeah. story come together that you now uh, went from it being in the private sector and investing sector and research to now trying to, it's a really different life being a politician versus uh, sort of investment research. Well, at some point in time, it, you know, first of all, we, we tried to go to the regulators and explain the problem. Uh, and we, we were nobody private citizens and, and, and we're not taking that seriously. Um, we released our research for free. We thought people would just pay us for research uh, as a service. And because it was critical, we were called short sellers, even though we didn't short. And then from then on, we just started shorting. And it wasn't until we started making millions where people said, oh, okay, smart guys. We'll listen to them. Uh, <laughs> and now some of these people hire us. Um, it, but it, re- it, it occurred to us at, at some point in time that if, if the money can't be taken back from China, and these people are not criminally prosecutable. Where does the money come from that, that short sellers are making? And it comes from the American people. It comes from our neighbors, our family, American citizens, and pensions. And that didn't sit well with me. So I lobbied Congress for three years as a private citizen. Um, I'm spending $100,000 to speak to my own elected officials. Uh, and, and it didn't go well. And that's what the China hustle is all about. It's, it's about the actual fraud. And I can't emphasize it enough. This is a fraud in progress. It continues to this, to this day. Nothing has been done about it. But that that members of Congress have been inactive on this issue to this day. It's still not illegal for a China-based person or company or CEO to steal from an American investor. And now, here we are 10 years later, there's $1 trillion worth of those stocks on our exchanges. And so you're you're you know running as a Republican, and the, a lot of the yeah. issues right now in the news every day this week has been China tariffs and yeah. the back and forth with China. Is is that a policy you support? Like, how do you think about the, the China issue that we're negotiating with Trump and and uh, the global leaders? Well, I mean, and look, notionally, uh, our presidents for the last twenty five years have said we've been treated unfairly on trade with China. And, and it's been rhetoric because nobody's ever been able to do anything about it. Uh, we do understand that it will be a fight. And as we're saying here, there's uncertainty involved and it will rile the markets at some point or another. That's just going to happen. But, but we have to remember that as Americans, when things get tough for us, we can't get weak in the knees when we know we're right. I don't know that tariffs were the right mechanism to use. Uh, it is a shot across the bow. It's a bit of a broadsword effect to something that a scalpel might be a better tool to use. I mean, if you just look at the U.S. Postal Treaty that we have with other countries, it treats China like a third world nation. So to ship something from China to New York under 4.4 pounds, it's something like three bucks or 330. 
to ship it back from New York to China at something like 50 bucks. Uh, and to ship it from South Carolina to New York within the same within the same country, it's something like six bucks. I, I you know my business is in skip back. For for me to send something in skip back, priority express to somebody else in skip back, it can cost more than sending something from Beijing to skip back because of this postal treaty. And our post office lost $170 million last year. So it just makes no sense that a treaty that was negotiated originally in 1894, taken over by the UN in the 1900s, still treats China like, you know, it might be some third world country. If you looked at the average Chinese citizen doing business with the average American citizen, that postal treaty probably makes sense. But when you look at Alibaba and what they've been able to do as, as an e-commerce giant and using AliExpress as their plug-and-play platform, now our small business owners here in the United States have to choose to ship from China, to buy products from China, ship from China to here in the United States just to stay in business. It's cost us jobs. Let me, let me ask you, I, I, just going back to the, the fraud issue. Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned Alibaba. Are, are you saying companies like Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, they are frauds also, or 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 not? I don't. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to say they're not. Uh, I, I'm going to say that uh, I can't say that they are. Uh, I can say that um, I was, as I was explaining today, one of the things I learned at Wharton, uh, to put it in, in the most succinct way possible is that math is science, uh, and it's empirical. Uh, two plus two is four, you know, two times five is ten. But accounting is an art form, and it's not science. And Alibaba, my problem with them isn't that I'm saying they're a fraud or not a fraud, is their accounting is very opaque and very difficult to understand. If you can do it, then, you know, you're worth tens of millions of dollars because nobody else has been able to put it together. Uh, there's no reason to have that many subsidiaries and be that opaque about your 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 infrastructure. Uh, it can be difficult, but Amazon manages to do it. Let me ask you another question. I, uh, you know, there's been a pretty big sell-off recently in mm. the Chinese market. Um, mm. I, I think the Shanghai Composite are selling for ten or eleven times what they what they are expected to report as this year's earnings. Mm. Um, are you saying that it, it really should be a lot less than that? I mean, you saying, I mean, that's pretty darn cheap. Are we, are we talking, we're talking the fluff in the earnings. I'm just saying, would you just say to everyone, uh, don't, don't buy anything in China or don't buy an index fund that, let's say, indexes to China? I would say I wouldn't buy any stock where the CEO of the company could steal it and they're not criminally prosecutable. I wouldn't buy apples if 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 we're saying Tim Cook is not criminally prosecutable. Uh, what about any foreign country? I mean, are they? Yeah, are they're, they they're, trying they're, to deal? No, it's not. I mean, that's a, that's a very good point. No, it is not. No, it is not. They're they're. But it is the the biggest by a factor of all the rest combined. So I mean, that's where you would start. Uh, you, you of course would have problems in Pakistan and uh, and and maybe India and maybe some. You know, uh, if you're talking about the Middle East, you could have some problems there, but they're nowhere near at the scale. And and I'm not I'm not bashing China. I mean, I want our relationship to be good. I want it to be better. Our relationship with China is forever, uh, and it should be based on friendship and and mutual respect. If our people are stealing from them, our people should go to jail. 
my, my biggest problem is, is with the people here in the United States that are helping China-based operators steal from Americans. You, know, you, made, you made a you know, pretty strong statement stealing from investors, from pension funds and all that. You mentioned 2006, so I, I'm sitting in front of a Bloomberg machine. So I looked at the Shanghai Composite uh, since May of 2006, so we're talking about 12 years. Um, the average annual return in U.S. dollars uh, has been 10% a year. The S&P has been 8.8. So over the last 12 years, if you just bought uh, an index Chinese uh, stocks, you would have outperformed the S&P, which has done pretty well. Well, there's two things here. One, I'm confused because we keep going back from our markets, you know, where where China-based companies are listed, and that's what I'm talking about. And you're talking about mainland China markets, uh, which are a completely different issue and and, and largely unrelated. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, they're, they're – Well, I think they – don't they – I mean, I thought that, uh, you know, they – the Shanghai Composite 300 has these companies in it, doesn't it, or no, not? No, no, it does not. No, or it doesn't have Alibaba, Tencent, no. or any of those companies no. in it. No, 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 no. They they can delist and go back home. Some of them could be ADRs through Hong Kong, uh, but no. Uh, if you're listed here in the but United States, I would States, imagine an ETF that was just based on those have has way outperformed the S and P over the last. 12 years. Wouldn't you say so? I would say the MSCI index uh, yeah. has, has certainly outperformed. Uh, and it's this is how can you say they've stolen? I mean, if, if the investor, I mean, you're right, there's probably frauds in there. And I, I don't doubt that. But yeah. overall, if, uh, if a group of investors has done better than American companies, um, it's hard to maintain that they've stolen. Well, that's a fact. I mean, I mean, it's it's an empirical fact that they've stolen. The investigations have been in. Well, there's, there's the, some that have frauds, right? But overall, yeah. investors have done pretty well. Well, I mean, look, just because you make seven percent uh, doesn't mean that you know you shouldn't have made ten. Is it well, okay. is it okay but, if but, it's a skim? Know. I mean, it really it well, really is know, a skim. Stealing some. I'm sure they're stealing in Russia too. I mean, I mean, I'm sure they're stealing in many of these emerging market countries. It's a matter of scale. It's a matter of scale. Well, Russia, I think, you know, is has as we know a lot of problems. I mean, you probably read the book Red Notice, Bill uh-huh, Browder, uh-huh, uh-huh. and you know yeah. he details what's happened in Russia. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I think that if you want to compare um, the China markets to Russia, I'm not sure they would be happy with that equivalency, but I'm fine with it. Um, okay. Let me uh, sort of change topics a little bit. So going back to when in the professor's opening, he, he talked about the Supreme, Supreme Court issues. Any, yeah. any thoughts on, on how that's going to play out? No. Uh, I, I can't predict what uh, President Trump's going to do there. Uh, I would I would. You know, imagine um, he likes to move forward quickly. It wouldn't surprise me uh, if he nomin- nominated somebody quickly. Uh, I don't know that that's the best move in the world. Uh, I would settle for just having the best judge, uh, the most qualified judge, not the most partisan judge. Uh, somebody that Democrats could feel good about as much as Republicans. Uh, I, I really hope that we don't go out there and just pick somebody that would be so distasteful uh, to uh, the Democratic Party that it's going to be 
a problem for everybody. Well, I mean, in the last 20 years, unfortunately, and I mean, I agree with the, the sense of your statement, that unfortunately, it has been very partisan yeah, for the I agree. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, uh, it would be a big surprise if, if Trump suddenly, you know, changed positions and said, I want to get something that the Democrats could support. I mean, he has a, uh, you know, a uh, two-vote edge in the Senate. Uh, the filibuster rule is gone. Um, if he has no Republican senators uh, opposing a nominee that he picks, he can push that through before the midterm elections. Yeah, but is it the right thing to do is the question. And I think that's not not enough of our politicians ask that question of themselves. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not running to, for Congress to be like everybody else in Washington. Do you think it would, do you, let me ask you, do you think it was the right thing to do for the Republicans uh, to nix Garland as a nominee for a year to make sure that if we won, if the Republicans won, uh, they would have the choice? I thought Merrick Garland was a, a pretty good pick. I mean, and, and conservative. Uh, so I, I would have liked to have seen him on the on the court. I'd like to see him on the court today. Uh, but yeah, you're right. This goes back to the Biden rule, which is now called the McConnell rule, and and it's this bipartisan, uh, uh, you know, uh, not bipartisan, but this partisan. Don, um, you sound like a more moderate Republican. Well, look, I think we all are. I, I think we're all well, tired we're of it. All. <laughs> well, well, look, I, I am. I, I'm, I'm okay, tired. Yeah, I'm talking about you. I, mean, I, I think that's good. I'm much more of a mainline Republican myself, but it's gotten fiercely uh, partisan, and you're either you know Trumpian or non-Trumpian, and I think that's very unfortunate. Well, that's um, not the job I'm applying for. I'm applying to work for the people, uh, and, right. and and I think the legislature should work for the people. And I support or I don't support any president one issue at a time. Uh, and our legislature for the last 20 or 30 years has ceded all of its power to the executive branch. Mm-hmm. And it gets worse and worse every day. Yeah. We, we only have two branches of government that work at all. And the legislature isn't one of them. <laughs> it also has the lowest uh, public opinion. Uh, well, they earned uh, it. Numbers <laughs> of almost any institution, public or private, in, in the United States. Well earned. <laughs> We've been talking with Dan David. He's running for, again, the 4th District Congress position. You're listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 111. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.